This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 166th edition of the program. Today is November 1st, and we are just five days out from midterms, so we're going to focus on that. But before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support the program. And that includes Christian LaSalle, Sidney Perez, Trevor Scott Carlson, Wendy, and William Oliver. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com support, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, Brazil's new far-right president is a lot like Donald Trump, but on steroids. So we'll talk about Jair Bolsonaro. Also, Hillary Clinton flirts with the idea of a 2020 run while leftists collectively cringe. Jimmy Carter calls on Brian Kemp to resign amid a mass voter suppression scandal. Andrew Gillum lays the smackdown on Ron DeSantis yet again. Trump continues to fearmonger over the migrant caravan. Claire McCaskill gets desperate and goes full Republican as her poll numbers plummet. Bernie Sanders brilliantly shuts down MAGA chud hecklers. Fox News criticizes Bernie Sanders for criticizing the United States. Three states just aligned with the GPI in the net neutrality lawsuit that may be make or break for the internet. Comedians Jon Stewart and Dave Chappelle offer us some words of wisdom. And finally, we'll end the show with a word about the synagogue shooting. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's program. I hope you guys will enjoy the show. So if you've been following our coverage of the Georgia gubernatorial race, you'd see that there is blatant voter suppression going on because current Secretary of State Brian Kemp is also the Republican nominee for governor in that state, and he's using his power as Secretary of State to suppress the votes of thousands of new voters that Stacey Abrams, his Democratic opponent, is registering. And the plot keeps thickening here because we're finding out more and more as more journalists investigate the situation and the extent to which Brian Kemp is a fraud. It was massively understated in our previous videos because we have some more news about this individual and just how blatant he is at trying to suppress the vote. Now, originally, we know that he placed 50,000 new voter registrations on hold, but the good news is that a judge moved to block them from doing this. However, there is some bad news because we're learning that the number of votes that he is suppressing is actually closer to 340,000. And as Peter Wade of Rolling Stone reports, Republican gubernatorial candidate and current Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp incorrectly canceled some 340,000 voter registrations, according to a recent investigation. Although Kemp claimed the voters left the state of Georgia or moved to another country, they hadn't. Greg Pallast, who filed the suit against Kemp, wrote in Truthout. 
And additionally, as Bob Brigham of Ross Story explains, yet another voter suppression scandal in Georgia was reported by the New York Times on Thursday. The Democratic Party of Georgia reportedly submitted over 4,700 vote-by-mail applications in DeKalb County, but the elections board could only confirm receiving 48 requests. So, conspicuously enough, his office just so happened to um, lose more than 4,000 vote-by-mail applications. Hmm. And also, simultaneously, they are trying to suppress more than 300,000 voters. I mean... He's suppressing the vote in such a brazen way. He's not even trying to be inconspicuous and he won't resign. There's been a lot of individuals now across the country that have called on him to resign because there's this huge conflict of interest. If you are supposed to uphold the integrity of the election that you're running in, if you're going to be secretary of state while you're running in this election, that's that's unacceptable. So at least step down from your position as Secretary of State and let someone else take over because odds are you're going to find another Republican crony that's going to do your bidding anyway. But he won't even do that. And it's gotten so bad that former President Jimmy Carter has even come out and called on him to resign, saying, quote, in Georgia's upcoming gubernatorial election, popular confidence is threatened not only by the undeniable racial discrimination of the past and the serious questions that the federal courts have raised about the security of Georgia's voting machines, but also because you are now overseeing the election in which you are a candidate. Carter added, in order to foster voter confidence in the upcoming election, which will be especially important if the race ends up very close, I urge you to step aside and hand over to a neutral authority the responsibility of overseeing the governor's election. And when you look at Real Clear Politics public opinion poll aggregate data, you'll see that Stacey Abrams, I mean, for a red state like Georgia, She's right behind him. They're essentially polling within the margin of error. So he's absolutely terrified and he's pulling out all the stops and he's playing dirty. Last week on the program, we played some audio of him essentially admitting that all of these new voter registrations is a concern to him. And at this point, he knows that the only way he's going to win is to get dirty and suppress the vote. Now, I don't understand why if you are worried about other voters registering to vote, you don't just try to register more Republican voters, more new Republican voters. But he knows that Democrats, they will win if they, in fact, expand the electorate, whereas Republicans, they have to rely on the voting base that is relatively reliable, that always comes out to vote. They're always going to have about the same amount of voters come out and support them. So really, each election across the country, it doesn't matter to the state, is going to hinge on how successful their opponents get out the vote campaign is. And Stacey Abrams is very successful at getting out the vote. Now understand, of those 53,000 voter registrations that he put on hold, 70% of them is voters of color. Now, why would someone like Brian Kemp have an interest in specifically suppressing voters of color? Well, it's obvious. By and large, 
Republicans do not get votes from people of color. Those individuals are more often than not going to vote for Democrats. So what he's doing is he's targeting voters of color, new registrations, because he knows that's exactly what is going to be his ticket to victory. And it's absolutely disgusting. And I've said this once, I'm going to say it again, there should be national outrage. And what we're seeing here, I mean, voter suppression, it's on display, perhaps more so than ever. This isn't some kind of new phenomenon. I don't want to imply that, but we're seeing it on full display here. I think more so than in recent years, you see Chris Kobach in Kansas doing this. You see Nevada doing this. The state of Texas, you see voting machines switching votes, and the Republican Party is claiming that they don't have the authority to do anything about it. I mean, look, if Republicans pull out a victory, if for some reason the blue wave is suppressed, we know it'll be in part due to voter suppression tactics, because if you're a Republican and you're worried about winning, you cheat. They're proving this to us time and again, and it's completely unacceptable and downright disturbing, quite frankly. Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis faced off in their second debate, and I pulled a clip that I wanted to share with you guys because it really proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Andrew Gillum is undoubtedly one of the most skilled debaters in the country. And the beauty about this particular clip in question that I'm about to show you is that when it comes to the question of Ron DeSantis's racial intolerance, Andrew Gillum didn't even really have to say very much to just completely obliterate Ron, but he, he made a really quick, concise point, and it left Ron DeSantis in a position to where he couldn't possibly recover from that. So take a look, and then I'm going to give you my analysis after this clip. Live TV in August on the first day of the general election campaign, you said of Andrew Gillum's run for governor, quote, the last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by embracing a socialist agenda. Fox News quickly disavowed your words, saying, quote, they do not condone the language. Now, you called some of this response absurd. You've made appearances at four of David Horowitz's Freedom Center events, again, four separate times, four speeches, among some of Mr. Horowitz's statements, quoting here, this country's only serious race war is against whites. You know, I'll ask the questions. Okay. It's not a McCarthy game, and I, I'm giving it, yeah. wait for the question, okay. sir. Okay. He also said, if blacks are oppressed in America, why isn't there a black exodus? Now, in 2015, in your speech before the Freedom Center, you said of Mr. Horowitz, David has done such a great, a great work, and I've been an admirer. I've been to these conferences in the past, and I've been a big admirer of an organization that shoots straight, tells the American people the truth, and is standing up for the right thing. Those are his words. Here's my, here's my question. He had not even get, made those statements then. Uh, yes, he had, sir. The first statement was made uh, many well, how, years ago. I mean, how the hell am I supposed to know every single statement somebody makes? Here's the deal. Let me just say this. Let me just say this straight up. Uh, you know, I've lived my life, whether it's athletics, whether it's military, whether it's serving as a prosecutor. You know, when I was downrange in Iraq, we worked together as a team, regardless of race. We had the American flag on our arm. We wore the same uniform, and we fought for the country. When I was a prosecutor, 
I stood up for victims of every race, color, and creed. That's the only way to do it in our country. It's something I believe in, and as governor, I will represent all the people. Everyone will get a fair shake. But I am not going to bow down to the altar of political correctness. I'm going to not let the media smear me like they like to do with so many other people. So I'm, I'm certainly gonna not going right to take there. anything from Andrew Gillum, who's endorsed the Dream Defenders, which says Israel is an apartheid state, and, and which says the police that, and prisons have no place right in justice. Mr. Gillum, wait for the applause, then, Bill. And I, and Mr. DeSantis, I'll point out, I wish you would have waited for the question, because I had a question, and it's not what you think it is. Mr. Gillum, I'll give you a chance to respond now. Well, let me first say, my grandmother used to say, a hit dog will holler. Uh, and it hollered uh, through this room. Mr. DeSantis has spoken. Uh, hey, first of all, he's got neo-Nazis helping him out in the state. Uh, he has spoken at racist conferences. He's accepted a contribution and would not return it from someone who referred to the former president of the United States as a Muslim, N-I-G-G-E-R. Uh, when asked to return that money, he said no. He's using that money to now fund negative ads. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. But, Mr. DeSantis, uh, if I would ask the audience to please let Mr. DeSantis now respond. Now, towards the end of the clip there, I don't know if you noticed, but the moderator had this smirk on his face that was kind of funny to me because you could tell he clearly couldn't contain his laughter after witnessing the utter smackdown that just happened before his very eyes. So I just thought that that was kind of humorous there and wanted to share it with you. Now, I want to get to what Ron DeSantis said here because he didn't say anything substantive at all, really, to defend himself. I mean, he only started spouting off platitudes about how him and his military buddies, they all wore the same flag on their arm, and, you know, he represented all races as an attorney, and yada, yada, yada. You're not saying anything meaningful, Ron DeSantis. Throughout the course of this campaign, a lot of people have been hammering you for your racial intolerance, and for good reason. The day after the primaries, you said we can't, quote, monkey this thing up. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda. That's not just dog whistle racism. I think somebody made the comment on Twitter. This is bullhorn racism because you're not really even trying to hide the fact that you are racially intolerant at a minimum. Now, he said here, um, how the hell am I supposed to know every single statement somebody makes? And you could tell that he was actually emotional because he's constantly been on the defensive throughout the course of the campaign. So you could see that it's really catching up with him. It's starting to really get to him. However, if you align yourself with generally racist and shitty people, well, that level of carelessness is going to have negative consequences for your campaign. It's coming back to bite you in the ass. You didn't have to align with individuals who are racist. You didn't have to accept the donation from an individual who called Obama the N-word. You chose to do that yourself. And what is his defense? Quote, I am not going to bow down to the altar of political correctness. Well, there's a difference between being racist and being politically incorrect. There's a clear difference there. Someone calling Obama the N-word, that individual is not being politically incorrect. That person is just being openly racist. But the ironic thing here is that as Ron DeSantis rails against political correctness, he weaponizes it in that same argument in order to benefit him. So he brought up the um, group that Andrew Gillum is aligned with and said, oh, well, they claimed that Israel is an apartheid state. 
Well, clearly, to point that out, you're showing that you are also opposed to political incorrectness because them saying that clearly offends you. But the implication and the reason why Ron DeSantis brought that up is because, well, he's trying to say, see, they are actually anti-Semitic and Andrew Gillum is aligning with them. So if he can align with anti-Semitic organizations like that, then why can't I align with racists? There must be this double standard. No, there's no double standard. That's very different. So, understand, he's trying to have it both ways. He's railing against political correctness, but then saying, look at this group, they said something that's politically incorrect. That's offensive. Now, in his mind, he's calling out the double standard, but in actuality, he's being a hypocrite because those are two very different things. Again, when you look at the facts, the Israeli government is doing what is tantamount to apartheid. So, you may not like that detail, people may not like hearing that, but that doesn't make it inherently anti-Semitic. It's a critique of government, not the Jewish people. And the individuals that you aligned with were not criticizing Obama based on substance or policies. The donor whose money you took and refused to return called Obama a Muslim n-word so he knows that he's guilty and that's exactly why he got so emotional because he doesn't know how the hell to get himself out of this pickle that he put himself into but andrew gillum capitalized on that emotion that he saw and had the perfect response it was the moment that i think probably went the most viral throughout the course of the debate he said quote my grandmother used to say a hit dog will holler and it's hollered throughout this room <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> that was probably one of the best clapbacks I think I've ever seen in a debate before. Because it was simple, it was straight to the point, and really it left Ron DeSantis in this position to where he couldn't actually grapple with any specific assertions that Andrew Gillum brought to his attention. He just made a statement, look, a, a hurt dog is going to holler. What do, you, what do you say to that? How do you even begin to formulate a response to something like that? And when it comes to the question of whether or not Ron DeSantis is racist, that's more tricky because if you just call him a racist, he could simply say, no, I'm not a racist. He can deny it. But this is when Andrew Gillum came in with a really powerful response. And in my opinion, he just stole the show right here. He said, no, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. There is absolutely no coming back from that. You're done. That was a knockout. Put yourself in Ron DeSantis's shoes. In the event that was said to you, how do you respond? Take a moment to think about it. There, there's really nothing you can say. He was backed into a corner and that was the knockout punch from Andrew Gillum. Now, I'm going to play the clip for you, that last part, one more time, because I want you to pay attention to Ron DeSantis. Not Andrew Gillum. I mean, focus on what he's saying, sure. But focus on what Ron DeSantis does when Andrew Gillum says this. You're going to notice something really interesting. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. But, Mr. DeSantis, uh, if I would ask So what you saw right there was Andrew Gillum leaving Ron DeSantis utterly speechless. And for good reason. How do you come back from that? 
I mean, sure, maybe throughout the course of, you know, a few weeks, you can craft a response. But this was right then and there. It was at the debate. There was no way to rebound from that. And it was essentially a death blow in that debate. It secured Andrew Gillum's victory in that debate. So understand, I want you to separate uh, Andrew Gillum from the policy, from the partisanship. Just think of him as an apolitical figure and examine his debate performance in a vacuum. He's got to be one of the best. I've covered a lot of debates on this program, and I don't think I've ever seen someone be able to corner their opponent in such an effective manner to where they're left speechless after an attack and they have no way of responding. That's exactly how you do it. And Democratic Party strategists, you know, going to 2020 Bernie Sanders people, if they want to win, they need to examine Andrew Gillum or get some pointers from him because this is exactly how you debate with Republicans when they're willing to play loose with the facts, when they're willing to be disingenuous and obfuscate. And it's really difficult to pin them down on anything because they're willing to lie. You reframe it so that way they can't get out of the corner that you back them into. Over and over again, uh, Ron DeSantis tried to flip it on Andrew Gillum. And those blows just, they don't land. Those punches do not land. So this is really fascinating. Um, I don't think I've ever been as captivated by debates as I've been by these debates between these two because Andrew Gillum is just, he absolutely is a monster. And debate-wise, he's one of the best. I, You know, credit where it's due. I may not agree with him on everything and maybe disappointed with him for good reason. But when it comes to debating, I mean, You've got to applaud him and really try to extrapolate as much as you can in terms of strategy out of this because he has a winning technique that Democrats got to emulate when going up against Republicans. Bernie Sanders has been traveling across the country campaigning for Democrats and he is attending two and even in some cases three rallies per day. So you can tell He's tired, right? And he's just done with the bullshit. And I'm going to show you a clip that kind of demonstrates that, but I'm showing it to you not just because it's entertaining, but I think there's a lot of strategic value in this clip. So in the state of Nevada, he was campaigning and he was met with a bunch of hecklers, specifically Donald Trump supporters who held up big Make America Great Again uh, banners. And his response, in my opinion, was perfect, specifically when you think about his framing. Take a look. What we have now is a situation in Washington in where you have Trump and his Republican friends prepared to give a... Do you really want to give a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the one percent? Do you really want to throw 32 million Americans off the health care that they have? Brothers and sisters, our agenda is a little bit different. Unlike Republicans who haven't raised the minimum wage in this state for 10 years, 
We're gonna fight to raise that minimum wage to a living wage, 15 bucks an hour. And when we talk about wage fairness, we're gonna do away with the absurdity of women making 80 cents on the dollar. And when we talk about women's rights, we know that it's not the government who's going to control a woman's body, it is the women themselves. And while we're here on this great campus, we say loudly and proudly that we are going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. And we are going to substantially lower student debt, which is such a burden for so many people. And when people tell us we can't afford to do that, well, we say that if Trump can give a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1%, you're damn well sure we can make public colleges. Now, ask yourself this. Why was Bernie Sanders' response to them so effective? I mean, because he was already emboldened, no matter what he said, since the crowd was already on his side, and that was just a couple of hecklers. But why was his response so brilliant? Well, you have to look at the framing. It all comes down to framing. The way that he framed his questions to them made it seem as if, if you disagree with Bernie Sanders' policy positions then you're not just wrong, you're actually being unreasonable. Because think of these quotes. Really? Do you really want to give a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1%? Is that what you want? Do you really want to throw 32 million Americans off the healthcare that they have? I mean, you're framing this in a question, in a way that if they reveal their true policy position, well, sure, if you support Donald Trump, that is, in effect, what you support. But of course, no reasonable person would admit to that. So Bernie Sanders took the worst of what Trump has to offer and flipped it around on them and said, look, do you really support these horrendous things that Donald Trump is doing? And I think that that's a really clever way to frame questions to our political opponents. And as you saw, he then moved on to various policy proposals that he supports. And that's important because if you are going to frame your opponent's policies, then you've also got to counter with your own policy proposals. And when you see that juxtaposition between Bernie's proposals and Trump's proposals, it's a really, I think, effective way to get your message across and really show this contrast between individuals like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, even if the establishment wants to tie Bernie to Trump because they're both anti-establishment or certainly um, espouse anti-establishment rhetoric because at this point I don't think Donald Trump is anti-establishment because he's doing the establishment's bidding but Bernie Sanders he is anti-establishment now the reason why I think this is important is because in conversations with our peers in 2020 it's coming up we're gonna need to adopt this type of framing if we want to win not just against Republicans but corporate Democrats because think about this who's gonna be Bernie Sanders biggest competition in 2020 it's going to be entrenched establishment politicians like Joe Biden. But if you frame questions about policy 
in this way to fellow liberals who may be further towards the center than you, then it is, I think, a powerful way to make a point about the policies that we support. So when it comes to Medicare for All, you can say, really? So you think it's acceptable that people who can't afford health insurance die and go bankrupt in this country? Really? And it makes it seem as if that policy is common sense, because it is. And I think that this debate probably won't be as intense in 2020 as it was in 2016, because we've won this debate, right? 70% of the country, including a slim majority of Republicans, support Medicare for all. But that's just an example of how we should frame questions. Look at the worst aspect of your opponent's policy and frame it in a way so that way they have to answer for that, right? The point is that our positions are populist and I think they're common sense positions to have, so we need to start framing them in a way that makes other people seem like they're the ones who are being unreasonable if they disagree with us, and understand that as we fight to monopolize the discussion when it comes to certain political issues, progressives are forced to play defense. We're forced to convince everyone else that we're the ones who are reasonable. We're not being unreasonable. I mean, just think of the healthcare debate. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was on CNN with Jake Tapper, the way that he framed the question about how do you pay for this, he made it seem as if she's unreasonable. The whole premise put her on the defensive by default. And that's just, that's not fair because she has the argument that's actually reasonable. And Jake Tapper is someone who's being unreasonable by being against Medicare for all. So progressives shouldn't be in this position wherein they're forced to prove that they're reasonable when everyone else is being unreasonable. And in framing issues this way, the way that Bernie Sanders framed it, I think that we are kind of putting our opponents on the defensive. We're forcing them to defend whether or not they're reasonable or unreasonable. And that matters. Framing matters. So I wanted to share this clip because it really got the gears in my head spinning about different strategies that we can use going into 2020, uh, the way that we frame questions and debates with our opponents. All of this matters. Framing is incredibly important. However, I will say this. A lot has changed since 2016. So it may be the case that corporate Democrats are paying attention and they could actually use this strategy against Bernie Sanders in an attempt to outflank him from the left. We've talked about this before, but Bernie Sanders won't unequivocally say that he supports abolishing ICE. Well, there are other Democratic senators who are likely going to be running, like Kirsten Gillibrand, who said she supports abolishing ICE. And also, I want to get to a quote from Bernie in this uh, same clip with regard to uh, something he said about student loan debt. He said that his goal is to substantially lower student loan debt. Now, as someone with thousands upon thousands of dollars of student loan debt, that sounds amazing. But do you want to know what sounds even better than substantially lowering student loan debt? Canceling it all 
together because this issue affects an estimated 44 million Americans and studies are beginning to show that if we actually cancel that 1.4 trillion in student loan debt, we actually can grow the economy and modern monetary theorists like Stephanie Kelton seem to be leaning towards cancellation as the solution to this issue as well. So all it would take is just one other candidate to use this framing against Bernie Sanders and say, so you're against student loan debt cancellation so you were able to make it through college with little to no debt but people nowadays they still have to have debt really you think that that's reasonable so understand how we're kind of in this different political climate to where going into 2020 everyone with the exception of joe biden knows that if you want to win a democratic party primary you've got to be liberal you've got to be progressive and framing really matters but it's why you have to be unapologetically progressive on every single issue so i am worried that you know Bernie Sanders is kind of setting himself up to be outflanked from the left. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that we have to be mindful of. And at the end of the day, if we adopt Bernie Sanders framing with regard to the issues and use that as a guide, I think it can help us in persuading individuals on our side to vote for Bernie and not someone like Joe Biden, who's a corporate Democrat, who is trying to position himself as an anti-populist or the anti-Bernie at a time when we desperately need people to be populist and actually listen to the American people. So, you know, I just wanted to share the clip with you because I thought it was entertaining and there was also some strategic value that we could extrapolate from that. But understand, in looking at this framing, Bernie's got to be cognizant of the fact that he's got to... You can only use this framing if you're the most liberal populist progressive candidate in the field but if he's gonna set himself up or he is setting himself up to potentially be outflanked on a number of issues which is really problematic so um look the framing is great but we've got to get the right policies to go with that framing because otherwise you know the framing doesn't matter if you're not correct on the issues but you know overall i still am going to be an enthusiastic bernie sanders supporter because no matter what any other corporate democrat says if you take corporate money i can't believe that you're going to be fighting for us and that's one thing that bernie sanders has going for him so we've got to we've got to be cognizant of the framing and the way we speak to peers about this because there's too much at stake to lose and um I think we can learn a lot from watching the way Bernie Sanders communicates with political opponents. And, you know, I'll leave it there. Claire McCaskill is currently in a fight for her life against a Republican named Josh Hawley in a state Donald Trump won by 20 percentage points. Now, when you look at aggregate polling data, they're currently statistically tied with Hawley coming out four points ahead of her in the most recent poll. So Claire McCaskill is clearly terrified and for good reason. It very well may be the case that she won't hold on to that seat. Now, the question is, what is she doing in order to make sure that she holds strong and she beats this insurgent Republican challenger? Well, she's choosing herself to go full Republican. That's right. So in an interview with Brett Baer on Fox News, she made it very, very clear that all of those voters that supported Donald Trump in 2016, well, they have a lot of good reasons to vote for her as well. And throughout the course of this interview, you're going to see that it was 
downright cringeworthy because the extent to which she was pandering, it honestly gave me this visceral, physical almost reaction to where I felt embarrassed for her because you could just, I mean, the desperation was palpable in that room, I'm sure. So we'll watch it and then I'll tell you everything she's doing that's actually hurting her chances because she's doing a lot of harm right here. Your critics say you voted for every one of President Obama's Supreme Court nominees and then you voted against Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. So they say, you know, how is that not just moving with your party where it wants to go? I voted for over 70 percent of President Trump's judicial nominees. 70 percent. I voted for more than half of his cabinet members. I vote with him half the time. He signed 38 of my bills into law. That doesn't sound like, to me, somebody who is knee-jerk. Some of my colleagues are knee-jerk against the president. I don't get up every day figuring out how to fight the president. I get up every day trying to figure out how I can fight for Missourians. To that point, you have this radio ad out now that says, at one point in an exchange, she's not one of these crazy Democrats. Claire's not afraid to stand up against her own party. Yep, and Claire's not one of those crazy Democrats. Who's the crazy Democrat? The crazy Democrats are people who walk in restaurants and scream in elected officials' faces. The crazy Democrats are, we have a state senator here in Missouri that actually advocated for the assassination of President Trump. That's a crazy Democrat. Um, I don't do those things. I am not somebody who thinks that we should ever be uncivil. I think what most Missourians want is for us to listen to each other, figure out where we can compromise, not scream in each other's faces, not call each other names. So I'm really talking about um, civility here. I'm talking about being polite, having good manners. Just to be clear, there's not another crazy Democrat in the Senate. Well, I would say this. I would not call my colleagues crazy, but Elizabeth Warren sure went after me when I advocated tooling back some of the regulations for small banks and, and credit unions. Um, I certainly disagree with Bernie Sanders on a bunch of stuff. Um, so I'm not afraid. You know, so you, you I, I've done those kinds of things which do separate me, I think, from some of the knee-jerk uh, folks that just are against the president no matter what. So that was absolutely pathetic. Not only did she attack fellow Democrats as a Democrat herself, and she attacked them in the stupidest way possible, right? Because I'm very critical of Democrats myself, but if you're going to attack them, you've got to come with the substance. But she had none of that. And also, she made it clear that she's going to bow to Republicans. And she boasted about her pro-Trump voting record. She said, I voted for 70% of President Trump's judicial nominees. I voted for more than half of his cabinet. I vote with him half the time. Now, Understand that after previously stumping for Hillary Clinton and acting as a surrogate for Hillary Clinton and attacking Donald Trump, it looks kind of ridiculous that you're now bragging about how close you are and similar you are to Donald Trump. Now the question is, what would possess Claire McCaskill to suddenly boast about how her and Donald Trump are basically best buddies? Did she, uh, <laughs> did she have a change of heart? 
Well, no, it, it all comes down to strategy. And I think this is really the absence of strategy. But in her mind, this is what she feels she has to do in order to win. And touting her voting record and how much she votes with Trump, she thinks she's giving Trump supporters a reason to vote for her and support her in this election. But all she's doing in reality is giving her own base fewer reasons to come out and support her. Because if you're a liberal and your senator is telling you that the difference between her and a Republican is very slim, that's going to demoralize your own base. And she thinks that telling Trump supporters that she votes with him 50% of the time is somehow going to win them over. They don't want you, Claire McCaskill. When you tell them that you're voting with Trump 50% of the time, they're going to say, I want someone who's going to vote with him 100% of the time. So those people are unwinnable. You're not going to win over Donald Trump supporters. But you are going to piss off your constituents in the state of Missouri and communicate to them that voting really doesn't matter when it does matter. But they're going to see that there's no difference between you and the Republican and they're just going to opt to stay home as is often the case in these states where a Democrat chooses to pretend to be Republican light. It's a strategy that many Democrats have attempted and it failed them. Look back to the last midterm election in 2014. We had Alison Lundergan Grimes running against Mitch McConnell. And she was, you know, running these ads with her shooting a gun. She pretended to be a Republican. She wouldn't even admit that she voted for Obama in 2012. That's how much she wanted to get people to think she's basically a Republican. Well, look, you're not going to win over those Republican voters. They don't want someone who votes 50% or even 70% with Donald Trump and the Republicans. They want a full Republican. So you've got to win out with your own base. And they, these Democrats just don't get that. Now, she talks about, quote, crazy Democrats. And this, to me, was probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard a Democrat do in an election because she bought into the Republican Party's framing. She promoted this idea in a radio ad, an actual ad she ran, which is just absurd to me, that Democrats are inherently crazy and really it's the Republicans who are the reasonable party. They're the ones who are reasonable and she's not like these crazy Democrats. And think about this, even if you're trying to separate yourself from what you call crazy Democrats, you're still shooting yourself in the foot because you're a Democrat yourself, dummy. If you tell voters that some Democrats Democrats are crazy, but you're also still simultaneously a Democrat, then aren't they going to think, well, hmm, if Democrats are crazy and Claire McCaskill's a Democrat, well, therefore, I would deduce that she's also crazy as well. I mean, what kind of a strategy is this? It's like me saying, I don't support some of these crazy progressives. Well, you're admitting that some progressives are crazy in that instance and you're bringing down the image collectively of progressives, but she's doing this on a party level. It makes no sense. It's such a stupid strategy. Like, I, I'm abs absolutely baffled. Like, this is mind-boggling. What an absurd thing to say. Now, what is a crazy Democrat to Claire McCaskill? She kind of elaborates on this. Quote, crazy Democrats are people who walk in restaurants and scream in elected officials' faces. And also a crazy Democrat, she states, uh, we have a state senator here in Missouri that actually advocated for the assassination of President Trump. That's a crazy Democrat. Now, first and foremost, let me just point out how disgusting 
that false equivalence is because what you're equating is violence or a desire for violence with protesters. Like it or not, people who are screaming at people like Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz at restaurants, the reason why they're doing that is because they have no other way to reach their senators. They don't return phone calls. They don't return emails. They don't do town halls. So what are you supposed to do if the person who is representing you isn't representing you and you need to let them know that they're failing at their job? Well, if you see them in public, you confront them. You're their boss. If you're a voter, you are the boss. We pay your bills, Claire McCaskill. We are your boss. And like any boss does, if a subordinate is not going to listen, then you have to punish them. That's all that's taking place. That's democracy. Protesting is part of democracy. But she equated or really conflated restaurant screaming with hopes that Donald Trump would be assassinated unbelievable that's pathetic you're buying into this mob idea that republicans are promoting she's essentially doing what fox news has been trying to do in painting democrats as a mob meanwhile we have donald trump supporters sending bombs to democrats we have a right winger do a terrorist attack on a synagogue but yet She's buying into the framing, oh, you know, it's these crazy Democrats, left-wingers, the ones who are really crazy. I mean, how pathetic is that? Now, here's what she said that was embarrassing to me. She said, quote, I'm not somebody who thinks that we should ever be uncivil. So in other words, when Republicans chip away at your health care, when they chip away at your civil rights and civil liberties, you're supposed to shut up and take it. And if you speak out, Claire McCaskill thinks you should shut up and be civilized, be polite. I mean, this is just so pathetic, so spineless. It's difficult to fathom why she thinks this is a strategy that would be conducive to a win. I, it's embarrassing, if anything. If I were a Democrat, I would be embarrassed if that was my senator. Now, she also touted how Elizabeth Warren criticized her for voting to deregulate Wall Street with Republicans. Now, the way that she frames that is just right-wing framing. She says, well, look, I think there should be less regulations on small banks. Well, those aren't small banks. You didn't vote for that. You voted to deregulate Wall Street. Maybe they're small banks if you think that multi-billion dollar banks are small, but to normal people, that's not a small bank, Claire. She also separated herself from Bernie Sanders and said, you know, I, I disagree with Bernie. She's really going to great lengths here to distance herself from the left. And really the only two senators in the Democratic Party that actually give a damn. So now after seeing what was basically just a disgraceful interview, you'd think it couldn't possibly get any worse than that, right? What she said there, I mean, that's that's disgusting. That's the bottom of the barrel right there for a Democrat, right? Uh, no, it actually gets a lot worse because the issue of immigration came up and um, she essentially interrupted Brett Baer as he was asking the question to make it clear how much she agrees with Donald Trump. The other issue that's being talked about, obviously because the president is, is about immigration. Sure. So this caravan is getting a lot of attention. It's Stop coming. it at the border. 
And what do you do? When they get to the border, what do you do? I think the president has to use every tool he has at his disposal, and I'm 100% back him up on that. Whether it is turning them back, um, because we are not equipped to handle that many asylum claims into our system. Um, and by the way, that's one of the issues here. We've got to surge and use technology to address when somebody comes across the border and they ask us for asylum. The law says we need to hear them, but we're waiting way too long to hear it. We need to hear them right away. So I do not want our borders overrun, and I support the president's efforts to make sure they're not. That was just unbelievable. Wow. So essentially, this is what Claire McCaskill's response is in a nutshell. How do you do, fellow Republicans? <laughs> so getting back to the clip, it's clear she's going out of her way to make it clear that she agrees with Donald Trump because disagreeing with Donald Trump on the issue of immigration, I mean, if there's anything you can do to piss off his base, it's that. So she knows this. She's aware of this fact and she's trying to make it very, very clear she supports the president when it comes to immigration. And it doesn't matter how unbelievably cruel our stance towards immigrants has become over the years. She sides with the uh, far-right president here. I mean, this is just so disgusting. And you'd think, again, it's not going to get worse than that, right? <laughs> Pace yourself. It gets a lot worse. And really, it doesn't necessarily get worse in terms of policy, but she just made a complete fool of herself. So, we all know Claire McCaskill was one of the loudest cheerleaders for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Well, in this next clip, Brett's going to ask her whether or not she regrets voting for Hillary Clinton. Watch what she says about this. You're not even going to believe it because I couldn't believe this. Do you regret supporting Hillary Clinton in 2016? Uh, you know, that's a hard question. Um, you know, obviously my state disagreed with me on that. I thought she was certainly had the breadth and depth of experience that qualified her. Um, but I'd rather look forward and not backward. And my only request of the president is that I think we should not make the press the enemy. And I think the truth matters. Amazing. I've got nothing. I'm speechless. Her answer was, that's a hard question when asked whether or not she regrets voting for Hillary Clinton or supporting Hillary Clinton. What? So... Are you honestly trying to imply that maybe you should have supported Donald Trump? The only thing you could take away from that if you're a liberal is, oh, well, maybe she realizes that Hillary Clinton, you know, um, she just wasn't the best candidate. Maybe she should have supported Bernie Sanders instead. Well, actually, she wasn't a big fan of Bernie Sanders. If you go back to the primary, here's what she had to say about him on Morning Joe on MSNBC. Any other candidate that had the numbers that Hillary Clinton had right now yeah. um, would be, um, you know, talked about as absolutely untouchable. And all of a sudden, oh, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Right. I think it's, um, uh, uh, I think Bernie is too liberal uh, to gather enough votes in this country to become president. And I think Hillary Clinton is going to be a fantastic president. That person wants you to believe that maybe it's the case that she regrets supporting Hillary Clinton in 2016. <laughs> I mean, it's just, this is embarrassing. Way to waver 
on your principles. I mean, I didn't support Hillary Clinton. I don't like Hillary Clinton. But I'd at least respect someone like Claire McCaskill more if she stuck to her guns and said, no, I, I still support Hillary Clinton. That was the right decision. But that's just embarrassing. Here's the problem with Claire McCaskill. She has no soul. There's no driving political ideology behind her strategy for this campaign. All she does is she tries to figure out which way the wind is blowing. Oh, it's going left. We'll go there. It's going right. We'll head that way then. That's all that she's doing. That's Claire McCaskill in essence. And if you recall, after the 2016 election, when it was clear that all the momentum within the Democratic Party was with progressives and Bernie Sanders, she directly reached out to Bernie Sanders supporters and said this in a quote, all of you who are Bernie supporters, I need you. I want you. I want to talk to you. I want you to be part of our effort. Now, what was the response from progressives when she reached out to us? Uh, we essentially laughed in her face. We all collectively kind of just made fun of her because if you're going to try to reach out to a particular voting group, you've got to come with the policy. But instead, she brought us this sob story and expected it to resonate with us. Look, I'm in trouble. So I need your help. Well, if you wanted our help, here's a couple of things you could do. You can um, immediately call to end all the wars. You can sign on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. But she didn't do anything with regard to policy. She just thought that she'd get us on board by saying, look, it's, it's me or a Republican. I'm going to lose. I need your help. But that's not going to resonate with voters. We don't care about you. We care about policy, Claire. But here's the thing. Once she realized that pivoting to the left wouldn't work for her since progressives knew she was full of shit, she went in the opposite direction to try to see how well she'd fare among Trump supporters. And she pivoted to the right. And now she's talking about how much she disagrees with Bernie and is flirting with the notion, supposedly, that she regrets voting for Hillary Clinton and supporting Hillary Clinton because even Hillary Clinton is apparently too liberal for Claire McCaskill now, who is a conservative essentially. So I mean, Claire McCaskill, she has no core. She's inconsistent and in an attempt to hold her seat in a state that overwhelmingly voted for Trump, she is making a complete and utter fool of herself. Here's what you do if you want to win, Claire McCaskill. You should have learned this after Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. If you want to win, you don't appeal to Donald Trump's base. They're not voting for you. You bring out your own base. You expand the electorate. I mean, look to Stacey Abrams in the state of Georgia. She's running in a gubernatorial race and... The latest poll showed that she's ahead of him, and it's very close. She might not win this, but what she's doing is she's expanding the electorate. She's doing exactly what she needs to do to win. She's not going after Brian Kemp's Republican voting base or Trump's base. She's going after Democrats. You win over your own people. You get them to come out and support you. That's how you win. Now, to be fair, it is the case that Georgia went to Trump by only a five-point margin, whereas Missouri went to Trump by 20 points. So, I mean, maybe it's the case that this race is not winnable. Maybe Claire McCaskill couldn't do anything to win this race. But the point is, if you want to win, if you're truly vested in maintaining that seat and making sure that seat doesn't go red, 
The strategy you need to do is to get your base excited and you're not going to excite them by flirting with the opposite party's base who will never support you anyway. So look, either way, this is going to be a really close race and Claire McCaskill, she might not be able to pull this one off. She might actually lose. And if she does, that'll be specifically because of her own doing. It'll be precisely because of her strategic incompetence and lack of ideological cohesion. Let me just preface this video by saying I really debated with myself about whether or not I talk about this because Hillary Clinton is someone who I'm, I'm just sick of it, right? I'm sick of talking about her. I'm sick of hearing about her. And my feeling was that every time we see her in the news, if I talk about this, I am in a way, inadvertently emboldening Hillary Clinton. I'm adding to the noise, and I just, I'm done with Hillary Clinton. She has no real political power, even though she does have influence. There's still not really any good reason for me to talk about her, because if we all just stop paying attention to Hillary Clinton, at some point, she's got to go away. But unfortunately, when we're this close to the midterms, what she's saying it's problematic, and I'm worried that right-wingers will use what she's saying, tie her to Democrats, and hurt their chances next Tuesday. Now, even if you aren't very enthusiastic about the aggregate Democratic Party, there's plenty of progressives running. We have Ben Jealous, Emily Sirota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and whenever Hillary Clinton comes out and says something that's just absurd then there's a chance that right-wingers will try to tie Hillary Clinton to all Democrats, including progressives. So this close to the midterms, I really felt like it was incumbent on me and maybe other progressives who feel compelled to speak about this to come out and say she is not representative of the left in any way, shape, or form. Now, most of you have probably seen a plethora of articles recently talking about how she's not ruling out a 2020 run and she's uh, she's considering a 2020 run. There's been a number of articles and I've ignored them the best that I possibly can. But what she said here, it kind of crossed the tipping point for me where she's really actually floating the possibility of running in 2020. So here's what she said um, in a recent clip. We're going to talk about 2020 in a minute. Do you want to run again? No. Wait. No. That was a pause. Well, I, well, I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, be, look, I, I, I think, hopefully, when we have a Democrat in the Oval Office in January of 2021, there's going to be so much work to be done. I mean, we have confused everybody in the world, including ourselves. And we have confused our friends and our enemies. Right. They have no idea what the United States stands for, what we're likely to do, what we think is important. Uh, so the work would be work that I feel very well prepared for, having been in the Senate for eight years, having been a diplomat uh, in the State Department. And it's just going to be a lot of heavy lifting. So um, are you going to be yeah. doing any of that lifting? Do you feel like... Oh, I have no idea, Kara, but I'm, I'm going to... You know, I'm not going to even think about it until we get through this uh, November 6th election about what's going to happen after that. So she's not running. However, she went on to speak as if it's possible that she could be running. She is presumably saying, look, we need someone who's qualified, uh, who can hold that office and who's going to be competent. And I'm someone who is competent. I'm someone 
who would be very well suited to serve as president. So, in other words, no, I'm not going to run, but am I completely shutting the door on that? No, I'm not. And this is what some of her advisors have said, that she doesn't plan on running. However, she's not completely closing the door on a third presidential run. Now, personally, do I think that she's going to run? Probably not. But in saying something like this, I think she's, she's kind of just trying to get that idea out there in order to get a feel for what people are thinking. And because I think that's the case, it's incumbent on us to scream as loud as we possibly can that the answer is an unequivocal no. And if she's trying to get a feel for the response among liberals, this is what we think about you running, Hillary Clinton. No, God, please, no, no, no. No! So with that being said, I don't think she's going to run at the end of the day, but nonetheless, even just suggesting it in this way, it's still incredibly harmful. It turns people off to the aggregate party. And again, we're a week out from the midterm elections. And if voters who are generally undecided or don't like Hillary Clinton think that she's still has a lot of sway within the Democratic Party, it's going to hurt the Democratic Party's chances overall. Now, understand that this isn't just me being biased against Hillary Clinton, because yes, I personally dislike Hillary Clinton, but look at aggregate public opinion polling. The latest one from Gallup shows that her favorability ratings are still historically low, and her numbers actually remained the same since last November. So even if it's the case that she's not necessarily getting any less popular... The problem is, as she speaks, she's not getting any more popular, and when compared with Donald Trump, he actually has had a popularity increase since becoming president, so she's more disliked than Donald Trump currently. So, understand that if she were to run, which I don't think she will, but if she were to run, it would be devastating. It would essentially guarantee a second term for Donald Trump if she were able to win the Democratic Party nomination, that is. But I want people to understand that Hillary Clinton is not an adequate representation of the left. In fact, she doesn't represent the left at all. She's a right winger for all intents and purposes. I mean, she's neoconservative. Uh, she's neoliberal when it comes to economics, and she's not liberal, and liberals don't like her. Now, there was a voter panel on CNN that talked about her stumping for Andrew Gillum, who is a gubernatorial candidate in the state of Florida. And I think that this was a really fascinating clip because it gives you some insight into what voters are thinking when it comes to Hillary Clinton. And I think it's representative of what we all on the left feel about Hillary Clinton, contrary to what the, the right believes. So take a look and then we'll come back and share what they had to say about Hillary. A show of hands. How many of you think overall Hillary Clinton is more of a liability than an asset to the Gillum campaign. Almost all of you. Hillary Clinton is seen as this kind of figure that the right rails against. They go to rallies and they say, lock her up. Hillary Clinton's a rallying point for the right. They use that messaging against Hillary Clinton to drive out their vote. So I think you could end up seeing a huge boost in their numbers because you've you're, you have Hillary Clinton now on the other side being associated yeah. with Gillum so close. What concerns you about the baggage and the scandals that she was associated with um, and how that might impact the Gillum campaign? Well, her her post-presidential sort of, you know, demeanor 
or platform has been very sort of self-indulgent and very much about relitigating what happened in 2016. In our generation, my generation doesn't really respond to you know this relitigation of 2016 and I don't want to call it whining but like at this point that's kind of what it, it feels like. I am concerned and um, as a young person um, he, he nailed it. We're going forward, progressive movements, progressive policies, looking ahead and I think she represents an old Democratic Party. Does anyone think that Hillary Clinton can be helpful to the Gillum campaign? I do. I think she can be financially helpful because she has a history of fabulous fundraising and I think that's where she should stay. As far as right now going out and, and making speeches for Mr. Gillum, I don't think so. What is it specifically you think that, how might Hillary Clinton harm the Gillum campaign do you think? She's just got bad cred. Bad cred. Bad cred. People don't trust her. No one trusts her. I mean, I, I, the reality is I, I voted for her, um, I supported her, but she does things that um, she trips over herself. And um, she makes big mistakes. Hillary Clinton did an interview recently um, and said that um, she was asked about the Lewinsky affair and she said that it wasn't an abuse of power because Monica Lewinsky uh, was an adult. Horrifying. Is that something that Democrats want to hear right no. now leading no. up to the midterms? No. We're in 2018. Time's up. Me too. Harvey Weinstein unleashed a you know, generation-long abuse of power and it's completely tone-deaf to say that a female 21-year-old intern at the White House in the Oval Office with the President is not a victim and is bringing her on going to be a trigger for some people saying do you know what she just said a week ago her saying that oh she was an adult and you know we didn't do nothing wrong can hurt him in a way saying you know she's she's supporting what they had done at that time so the last thing you want is her down here just, in florida yeah i mean it's just not let's get some fresh blood down here yeah let's yeah. spice it up yeah absolutely. and it's too important yeah. The stakes are too high. Yeah, the stakes too are high. too high. Too high. Why risk it? Yeah. He's ahead right now. So that to me is more representative of how the left, actual left wingers, feel about Hillary Clinton. So when um, the host asked them to raise their hand if they felt like she was more of a liability than an asset to the Gillum campaign, all but one person raised their hand. I think we all can agree on that. Uh, one guy said Hillary Clinton is a rallying point for the right. That's exactly it. She's kind of like Nancy Pelosi in the same way that, you know, by tying a Democratic candidate to Nancy Pelosi, that really helps Republican candidates. And that's exactly what I think that right wingers can do the more that Hillary Clinton gets her name out there and floats a 2020 run. Also, the girl in this clip who is a millennial said, as a young person, we're going forward. Progressive movements, progressive policies, we're looking ahead, and I think she represents an old Democratic Party. And that's exactly it. All the momentum is behind progressives. It's behind people like Bernie Sanders. And at this point in time, for Hillary Clinton to keep flirting with this idea that maybe she'd run again frankly it's nauseating to a lot of people because we're trying to stop looking back at the disaster that was 2016 we're trying to stop 
reopening up this argument and relitigating the 2016 election and the primaries. We just want to move forward. And the more Hillary Clinton speaks out and says something cringeworthy about Me Too and Monica Lewinsky, the more that she makes it clear that she's not entirely shutting the door to another presidential run, it, it just it hurts the left. And I'm worried that that extends to people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, another woman, the older lady in this clip said, she's just got bad cred. People don't trust her. No one trusts her. The reality is I voted for her. I supported her, but she does things that she trips over herself and she makes big mistakes. Now, I didn't show you this, but towards the end of the clip here, and I'll link to that down below, Anderson Cooper brought on another pundit from CNN and she also brought, and he also brought on rather um, Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's former campaign manager. And one of the reasons that they agreed voters don't like Hillary Clinton and individuals like Nancy Pelosi is because of sexism. Now, most of the people in this clip that spoke out the most were women. I don't think that they're sexist. But one, the weaponization of identity politics like this, it's horrible, right? Because actually legitimate claims of, of misogyny and sexism, I mean, if you make those claims, you're just going to be laughed out of the room because Democrats, they pull this up to basically demonize anyone with a legitimate argument as to why Hillary Clinton or Nancy Pelosi shouldn't lead the party. And understand that most people who are against Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi, like myself, we support people like Barbara Lee being House Speaker. We support people like Tulsi Gabbard and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So it makes no sense to certainly speculate about the left in this way, but nonetheless, that's what they did. And just objectively speaking, from a strategic standpoint, having someone who is a damaged political figure stump for other Democrats, it's it's just harmful. It's bereft of strategy. It makes no sense. And the same is true for someone like George W. Bush. George Bush is not a very popular individual. And even if his popularity may have increased, I think it still hurts Republicans. And like it or not, you're seeing people like Ted Cruz and Scott Walker they're having to align themselves with Donald Trump because that's what excites the base, even if nationally, that might not necessarily behoove them. But understand that strategically, who you align yourself with, it really matters. Now, I will say this, even though I'm personally dissatisfied and really disappointed with Barack Obama, him stumping for Democrats, that's actually not problematic because generally speaking, among the electorate, he is a popular politician. But someone like Hillary Clinton, it doesn't just hurt individual candidates and at this point i'm speculating right because we have no demonstrable evidence that she is hurting andrew gillum's chances but for the most part if you're unliked the idea is you want to stay away from those voters so you don't hurt them but if she's if she's going to come out here continue saying controversial things and being generally divisive it's going to hurt the party and during midterms I think at this point, it's safe to say that she's just being selfish. She's only thinking about herself and she doesn't care about the party. She is opportunistic. She is self-interested and she doesn't have a real reason to want to get involved. She, she said it very clearly in the clip I showed you. I want to be president. I'd like to be president. Well, that's not good enough, Hillary. You had your chance and you blew it. And the implications of that are disastrous. In fact, it's going to hurt us for decades to come. So, for the love of God, Hillary, if you truly care about policy and the Democratic Party and the left, go away 
Stop saying controversial things. Stop flirting with the idea openly of running for president again. We don't want you. And every time you come out here and say these things and show your face in public, we have to come out and assure voters that no, she's not representative of the left. We care about policies like Medicare for all and ending the wars. And you make our job that much more difficult. You make it easier for Republicans to win by tying other Democrats to your name. Just please stop it and go away. You are hurting everyone. And I'm so sick of talking about Hillary Clinton. I hope I don't have to do it again. And certainly after midterms, I won't feel as inclined to do that. I was going to ignore this. But again, I just felt like this close to midterms, I've got to come out and ensure people, no, she's not representative of the left. Of course, that's not the case. She's not the left. The left doesn't think she's the left. True progressives like myself, we look at her as a right winger because when you look at her political compass score, she's on the right. So just stop it, Hillary. You have to stop this. Over the course of the weekend, the country of Brazil had a presidential election and it went horribly wrong because they elected a fascist named Jair Bolsonaro. Now, if you only read American mainstream media, such as the New York Times or the Associated Press, you'd think that they elected a far-right populist akin to Donald Trump. But in actuality, this is an individual who is more comparable to Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines because he's not just a proto-fascist and he's certainly not a far-right populist. This is an individual who has literally advocated for violence, explicitly so. And let me just say this, I've stated before that the only thing that can essentially defeat right-wing demagogues is left-wing populists. And I think that this is an example that really illustrates how true that is, because had Lula da Silva not been imprisoned on dubious charges, he would be elected president again, because all public opinion polls throughout the country showed that Lula would have won. But because he was imprisoned, now it's the case that Jair Bolsonaro was elected an actual fascist. And I'll tell you why it is accurate to characterize him as such. But understand that the reason why he was elected is due to mass dissatisfaction with the political establishment in the country of Brazil. There was rampant corruption. And also for the last couple of years, there was this widespread anti-corruption campaign. And right-wingers essentially used this campaign to persecute and prosecute their political opponents. Now, of course, there were legitimate cases of corruption, and there was a lot that was exposed throughout this campaign, but there were right-wingers like Jair Bolsonaro who were opportunistic and capitalized on this situation and capitalized on justifiable rage against the establishment, and it ended up thrusting him into victory. And the reason why this election is so important is because this doesn't just have implications for the country of Brazil and really democracy in Brazil more specifically, but it has implications for the world. Now, I'm going to go through and share some of the quotes that um, we have from Jair Bolsonaro because, I mean, I could show you article after article. There's a lot of pieces that have recently been written up about this guy, but I think that his own words speak for themselves. So there's an article by Andrew Fishman of The Intercept, and he compiled a list of quotes from Jair Bolsonaro that really give you just the sense of how terrifying this individual is as the president. Now understand that um, some of these quotes 
we don't have the context for them, but I think that they still speak for themselves. So nonetheless, in 1993, he stated, quote, I am in favor of a dictatorship, a regime of exception. And in 1999, he states, I'm in favor of torture. You know that, and the people are in favor as well. And in that same 1999 television appearance, he also stated, Through the vote, you will not change anything in this country. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It will only change, unfortunately, when one day we start a civil war here and do the work that the military regime did not do. Killing some 30,000, starting with FHC, which was the president then, not kicking them out, killing. If some innocent people are going to die, fine. In any war, innocents die. So I just want to pause right there. This is an individual who has advocated for violence throughout his career, and that hasn't changed recently. So this is absolutely terrifying. And when you look at that quote, he's not talking about killing people abroad and starting a war. He's talking about killing people in Brazil, starting a literal civil war. This is fascism. And it's not just the coincidence that we're seeing the rise of fascist leaders around the country. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro, he's one of them, but it's also happening in Italy, in Poland, in Germany, and a lot of these leaders are replicating Donald Trump's strategy. And Jair Bolsonaro is one of them. He often uses the same techniques that Donald Trump uses in that he cries fake news about everything that he disagrees with and doesn't like. But getting back to some of his quotes, you're going to see just what kind of a person this guy is. In 2002, he said, I will not fight nor discriminate, but if I see two men kissing in the street, I'll hit them. In 2003, he said this to a congresswoman. I would never rape you because you do not deserve it, slut. In 2010, he said, quote, I would be incapable of loving a homosexual child. I'm not going to act like a hypocrite here. I'd rather have my son die in an accident than show up with some mustachioed guy. For me, he would have died. If your son starts acting a little gay, hit him with some leather and he'll change his behavior. And in 2016, he said, I will not employ a woman with the same salary of a man, but there are many women who are competent. In 2017, he said, beyond Brazil, above all, since we are a Christian country, God above everyone. It is not this story, this little story of secular state. It is a Christian state. And if a minority is against it, then move. Let's make a Brazil for the majorities. Minorities have to bow to the majorities. The law must exist to defend the majorities. Minorities must fit in or simply disappear. And in 2017, he said, I'll give carte blanche for police to kill. Now, that's just some of the problematic things he said. He's, he said racist things about Afro-Brazilians. He said more sexist, misogynistic, and homophobic things. And he's advocated for violence again and again and again. But because... People were so dissatisfied with the political establishment in Brazil and this culture of corruption, cronyism, and just sheer incompetence on behalf of lawmakers. Well, they opted to burn it all down in the same way that Americans decided to burn it all down when it comes to Donald Trump. And this is the individual who they elected as president. Now, I want to go to a quote from Glenn Greenwald, who lives in Brazil 
and kind of summarized the situation in a really concise manner. He states, when a ruling class fucks over enough of the population for a long enough period of time, they're going to burn it down out of desperation and anger one way or the other. At some point, democracies are going to need to grapple with that or there will be Bolsonaro's everywhere. So if Bolsonaro actually does follow through with some of the threats that he's made, then democracy in Brazil may not last very much longer. Because this is someone who has made it very clear that he has authoritarian tendencies and he would like to be a dictator. So this is something that is terrifying right now for the people of Brazil, but it also has broader implications on the world. So back in August, he actually, like Trump, threatened to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement in the event he won. But recently, he backtracked on that a couple of days ago, saying that he wouldn't choose to do such a thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean his victory won't still be a disaster for the planet because he has expressed willingness to open up the Amazon to private companies. And as this Common Dreams article explains, these companies are already salivating at the thought of exploiting the Amazon rainforest. And this tweet from David Sirota really puts it all into perspective. He states, the planet's biggest shield against climate change, the Amazon rainforest, was just put under the control of a maniacal right-winger who will likely pursue a deforestation plan. This will get zero media coverage, even though it threatens the survival of all life on Earth. So this isn't just about Brazil. This has implications for the rest of the world. And this individual, who's a fascist, was just elected by a fairly strong margin. I believe it was 10 points over his opponent, and no matter how hard his opponent tried to tie himself to Lula, who was incredibly popular, he just couldn't pull it off, and there was so much disgust with the establishment, and there was so much political instability that the people of Brazil opted for someone who would just burn it all down, as Glenn Greenwald states here. His victory is absolutely terrifying, and we have to pay attention to this, because in the event he follows through with his threats of violence. Things are going to get ugly in that country really, really quickly. So this is absolutely horrifying news, to say the least. So if you're looking for a political analysis that's actually astute, then you're really not going to find that anywhere in mainstream media because you're going to get the viewpoint of someone who's rich, someone who's an elitist, and someone who has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So a lot of people are resorting to alternative platforms, new media platforms, YouTube, because you just... If you tune into mainstream media, these are people who not only do they not care about you because their interests don't align with your interests, but they don't even have the view of the world that you have. They live in that DC elitist bubble and they don't know what's going on. So every once in a while, though, there will be someone who penetrates that bubble and tells the establishment exactly what they need to hear. And we saw that this week and it came from comedians. John Stewart and Dave Chappelle, who had a more astute analysis of the American political climate than anyone I've heard from in the mainstream media recently. So the first clip I'm going to show you is of Dave Chappelle explaining the phenomenon that is Donald Trump. Some of the things they say, even when they say uh, 
that Russia influenced the election. It's kind of like, is Russia making us racist? <laughs> is, that, is that who's doing it? Oh, okay, I thought it was, oh my God, thank goodness yeah. I thought it was us. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, if, if they kill the country that way, then we're the murder weapon. Yeah. So We've always been. Is the Trump era a good era for comedians? Is it just unbelievable fodder or not? I would not even name the era after him. Yeah. He's getting too much credit. Well, he, he's, he's the not, president? He's he not the president. making the wave. He's surfing it. Yeah. They would the energy's always been there. He just, all he does is sing those people's greatest hits. Build a wall, all these things we've heard before. He just sings all the songs. He's the only one that has been brash enough to do it. That was such a phenomenal point. And really, it's similar to the points that individuals like myself, Kyle Kalinske, Jimmy Dore, and others have been making about the Russia situation. Because there's this underlying implication about all of this Russian hysteria that voters are so dumb and dim-witted that simply seeing memes on the internet was ultimately what duped them into supporting Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. But what Dave Chappelle is saying here and asking Quote, is Russia making us racist? Well, he's just stating the obvious. In order to support Donald Trump, there had to be something inherently appealing about his platform to begin with. You had to already be predispositioned to want to support Donald Trump. So I kind of feel like a lot of people in the mainstream media used this Russian issue as a scapegoat because they don't want to do a real cost-benefit analysis as to why voters actually did opt for Donald Trump. I mean, a lot of them loved his racism, but others liked him because he campaigned as an anti-establishment politician, and a lot of people just wanted to burn down the establishment because it wasn't serving them very well. Now, also, Dave Chappelle says, if they killed the country, that is, if Russia killed the country, then we're the murder weapon. And that's such a powerful point to make along these lines. Now, this is what he said that's really, really important in my view. He said, quote, I would not even name the era after Trump. He's getting too much credit. He's not making the wave. He's surfing it. All he does is sing those people's greatest hits, build the wall, all those things we've heard before. He just sings all those songs. He's the only one that's been brash enough to do it. That is exactly the truth in this situation. And even if individuals within that DC elitist bubble can't see that, it's what we all see. Donald Trump puts an ugly face on insidious Republican Party policies. He's the logical conclusion of Republican Party extremism because the more that they shifted to the right and did more dog whistle racism and try to goad their base into supporting these more xenophobic, anti-immigrant, homophobic policies, it's only a matter of time before someone sees that and just comes out and says what everyone in the party's base, in the Republican Party's base specifically, is thinking. We don't like immigrants. We want them all gone from our country. Donald Trump came along, capitalized on what a lot of other establishment Republicans were too afraid to capitalize on and just said what he was thinking. So I want to get to another clip here. This is from Jon Stewart, and he is going to talk about Donald Trump 
attacking journalists. And what he said here was really, really insightful. So do you think, because obviously we're all caught up in this sort of daily Trump fest. I mean, every single newspaper, every radio station, every bit of social media. You got to make money, too. Well, it's you got, dissecting. You got, you got bills to pay, man. You got electric bills. You got food. You know, this guy is, he's giving you all cash. The cash flow in the Trump era for, uh, for these TV stations and for these news can, can I say, that might have been an issue, and yeah. maybe it still is an issue for the people who are the bean counters. But we, yeah. the journalists, we, I think, believe that our job is to navigate the truth and to do the fact-checking and all the rest of it. So I think that's what motivates a lot of people. But I think the journalists have taken it personally. Okay, They're that's personally wounded and offended by this man. He baits them. And they dive in. And what he's done well, I thought, is appeal to their own narcissism, to their own ego. Because what he says is these are the, and the journalists stand up and say, we are noble, we are honorable, how dare you, sir? And they take it personally. And now he's changed the conversation to not that his policies are silly or not working or any of those other things. It's all about the fight. He's, he's able to tune out everything else and get people just focused on the fight. He's going to win that fight. You know, even um, Bob, Bob Woodward said that in his book on the, on the Trump White House that a lot of journalists are too emotional about this. But it's hard for us to be dispassionate when words from the White House mm-hmm. are aggressive against us and, 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 and you know, raise the spectrum of violence against think us. Of the no, no, we're used of, to it, believe me. Think of the communities We've been of out there color. in the field. Think of Muslims. Think of uh, the, the black community. People... You know, when journalists rise to this outrage of how dare you say this about us, think of the lives that they've been leading under this and and what they've been put on. So first of all, he brought up the point about how these TV stations, you know, their nonstop coverage of Donald Trump, it's profitable for them. They may not like Donald Trump, but they know that talking about Donald Trump nonstop before and after the election, it, it benefits them because they get ratings, they get more advertising dollars, and they love it. Trump is ratings gold for them. And it's why, you know, they broadcasted empty Donald Trump podiums during the primaries rather than talking about Bernie Sanders. Because Donald Trump was a story that got them money. So that's a really important point that he wasn't able to fully elaborate on before the journalists cut him off. But he also made another point. He says journalists have taken it person personally, referring to when Trump attacks the media. They're personally wounded and offended by this man. He baits them. They dive in. And what he's done well, I thought, is appealed to their own narcissism, to their own ego. And now he's changed the conversation to not that his policies are silly or not working or any of those other things. It's all about the fight. He's able to get people to tune out of everything else and just focus on the fight. And he's going to win that fight. Now, in what he said there, there's kind of this underlying implication that Jon Stewart thinks maybe Donald Trump is intentionally trying to have this adversarial relationship with the press and be overly antagonistic because he's playing four-dimensional chess or 10-dimensional chess. I don't think Donald Trump is that bright, and really, I don't think that Jon Stewart is trying to suggest that here. I think that, really, Donald Trump, he's driven by his own ego and narcissism. So, if he sees negative coverage, he simply responds to it as you know, a petulant child would. So that's what I think this is about. Uh, But I could be wrong. I'm just kind of speculating on what Jon Stewart thinks here. But he makes a broader point that is so fundamentally important that I'm so glad he said it. He states that, 
you know, what Donald Trump is doing here is he's wounding the egos of journalists. And this has kind of led to journalists playing the victim. And as a result, they're collectively ignoring the real damage that Trump's administration is doing to actual victims, actual marginalized communities that are vulnerable. I mean, black Americans, immigrants, native communities, transgender Americans, there's real damage that's being done that the media isn't talking about because they're mostly focusing on Trump's attacks against them and journalists, you know, being in that elite class, they have an interest in protecting themselves. So, I mean, we have two different topics here that, you know, John Stewart and Dave Chappelle talked about, but what they said here was so insightful and it was just a breath of fresh air. You'd never expect to tune into CNN and hear someone say something like that, but it takes comedians to really frame issues in a way that makes sense, that that elites in this country, journalists, politicians, just rich people, far better off people, need to hear. Because we've been talking about this, I've been talking about this, but nobody's paying attention to me. But people who actually are famous with the real platform, who has at least some ability to affect change by getting word out about what matters, that's really important. So I couldn't not share this. I... I I could listen to these two talk for days. They are, they really are gems in this country. And I wish that they would speak more about politics because everything that they say is just completely on point. So lately, with all of this talk about civility and this discussion about mobs on the left, Bernie Sanders made a really powerful point about civility. And this is directed at the hypocrites in the Republican Party, in the Senate specifically, who often like to cry about civility. He said this, quote, We can't use dirty words. This is the United States Senate. We just starve little children. We bomb houses and buses of children. And we give tax breaks to billionaires. But we don't use dirty words. Now, he said this on an episode of Sarah Silverman's new show on Hulu. And this was in response to her asking, uh, presumably, whether or not they're allowed to use dirty words. And since she was in, you know, Capitol Hill, he said, no, we can't use that. You know, we, we, we're not allowed to use dirty words. We're not allowed, essentially, to be uncivilized. But it is perfectly morally acceptable to bomb children. And this really just goes to show the moral depravity of the United States. It shows how morally bankrupt our country has become. Because while senators like Orrin Hatch will denounce protesters, while everyone will cry for Mitch McConnell as he's yelled at in a restaurant, while Donald Trump will take to Twitter to yell at supposed elevator screamers, as he likes to call them, the fact is that what we're doing goes beyond civility and incivility. We're doing a lot more horrible things. So if we're really going to claim to be this ethical nation, civility is the least of our concerns. Now, since Bernie Sanders said this, well, the goons over at Fox News, who often like to do propaganda on behalf of the Republican Party and the United States, well, they decided to call him out because they were clearly offended by what Bernie Sanders had to say here. This is their criticism of Bernie. We can't even use dirty words. This is the United States Senate. I can't? No, it's the United States Senate. We, we, we just um, starve little children. We go bomb houses and buses of children. And we give tax breaks to billionaires, but we don't use dirty words. 
Well, that was Senator Bernie Sanders slamming the U.S. in a new interview. This coming after Hillary Clinton declared in a recent essay that American democracy is in crisis. Let's bring back our A-team, Capri Cafaro, Chris Bedford, and Philip Bump. Chris? You know, he was kind of joking here, but it shows also what he thinks. This could have been a headline in a Students for Democratic Society newspaper in 1968, which is kind of where Bernie Sanders comes from, the, the old campus left, the old 60s left. The, what's going on in Yemen, he's been protesting that, is pretty serious. It's a war between Saudi Arabia and basically their proxies, the proxies for Iran. People are getting killed, and these are two mean, mean forces, and they're going at it. And that, this, the, the kind of scale and the, the dangers of this war that we're seeing in Yemen show how just and how careful the United States is when we conduct any kind of military operation. But, uh, you know, Philip, the, the situation is horrible, what's going on with Yemen. The bombing of that bus, uh, which the critics say was, was bombed by the Saudis using American right. munitions, and that it, we basically have blood on our hands, and the, and the senator's referring to that. But he's doing it in a jocular way. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky ground. I mean, he's obviously sitting there with Sarah Silverman, who's a comedian as well. It's clear that he was intending to be joking. We certainly have seen lots of jokes was in politics it? go south. I think pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to read that as whether or not it landed as a joke is a whole different yeah, question. Yeah. But I think he meant it that way. I think that what, what, what Senator Sanders, he's in a different position now, though, than he was certainly back when he was in college. And but even when before he ran for president, he is now essentially the voice of the far left in the United States. Perhaps Ocasio-Cortez is sort of creeping up on him in that regard. But those sorts of jokes are going to land a lot differently now than they would have three years ago, simply by virtue of his heightened uh, position right. in, and, the, in and the conversation. As someone who did, was not uh, a declared Democrat for right. you know decades, who you know represented Vermont as an independent since you know the, the early 1990s, and now you know it's unfortunately it's jokes, joking or not, yeah. it's these kind of statements that I think are, are you know damaging to the Democratic Party, and they can people point to and say you know this is why Demo we don't believe that Democrats are supporting of, of uh, America or, or patriotic. So he has, he has to be careful, and as that, do we. Is that a fair assessment? Um, it's absolutely not a fair assessment. Um, I mean, certainly uh, Democrats are just as patriotic as, as any American. But with statements like this, um, you know, it's an easy soundbite to point well, to. That made me really, really angry when I heard them say that because this whole premise is just absurd like the the debate itself is fucking insane think about what they're saying there if you criticize the united states and point out facts well that's inherently unpatriotic well i think the opposite is true if i criticize myself and i say i think that i should do a better job at listening for example does that mean that i hate myself no it means that i'm trying to be introspective and i'm trying to improve myself and that logically extends to the country as well. It extends to a macro national level. So this notion that if you criticize the United States, you're somehow unpatriotic and that any and all criticisms of what we do abroad is unpatriotic, it's just absurd. It's patently false. And what they're saying here is based on the illogical conclusion that's not founded in empirical reality that the United States actually cares about human rights because you heard what that uh, one panelist said. He said, quote, this war that we're seeing in Yemen shows how just and how careful the United States is when we conduct any kind of military operations. That's just factually incorrect the opposite is true that person had the audacity to say that as we keep getting these articles month after month about how donald trump is loosening 
the restrictions that we impose on our military in order to lessen civilian casualties. We're giving Saudi Arabia the bombs that they're using on children in Yemen, and yet you have the nerve to say that this war in Yemen shows how just and how careful we are? The dangers of this war that we're seeing in Yemen show how just and how careful the United States is when we conduct any kind of military operations. This war in Yemen shows just how morally bankrupt our country has become, and you don't even have to just look at the Yemen example. Look at the drone war in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia when we're carrying out these signature strikes. Yeah, we're being pretty fucking careless. So for that person to say that, that's incredibly harmful because he's misleading the public. You're on a national news station, the number one news network in the country right now, and you're saying something that's fundamentally untrue, and nobody on that panel fact-checked him. Unreal. Now... The extent to which Bernie Sanders is being serious was also discussed here because the underlying implication is that you just can't possibly be serious if you're criticizing the United States. So clearly, you know, he was being relatively facetious. So obviously it was the case that his criticism is invalid because he's joking. No, he was he was trying to be humorous about the fact that the way in which we prioritize civility over bombing people is morally absurd and in the same vein another person on the panel said this is damaging to the democratic party what bernie sanders is saying here is potentially damaging because quote this is why we don't believe the democrats are supportive of america or patriotic so he has to be careful no you need to be careful because in promoting this idea that we're not allowed to criticize what our government is doing abroad is incredibly harmful they're essentially saying here that our country is above criticism. What an absurd notion. And even if people believed you that you were being unpatriotic to criticize the United States government, who gives a fuck about that? Who cares about patriotism when lives are on the line? You want to know who doesn't care about U.S. patriotism? The children that died in Yemen as a result of us supplying Saudi Arabia with weapons. Patriotism doesn't mean a damn thing when human lives are at stake. And truly, if you want to influence people to be more patriotic, then maybe you should encourage the United States by being critical to actually be more compassionate in reality. And not just when it comes to rhetoric. Actually, in practice, be moral to these people you are just not allowed to criticize the united states if you want to be taken taken seriously and if you want to be viewed as someone who is patriotic well guess what we don't care about patriotism i don't care if you think i'm patriotic or not that doesn't keep me up at night what does keep me up at night are the bombs that we're using that my tax dollars is funding to kill children that's what i care about not what you think is and isn't patriotic go fuck yourself this is unbelievable like i can't even believe that they were outraged over this unbelievable conservatives are the biggest snowflakes ever because they're the ones who get triggered by the truth so we've been talking about the lawsuit by attorneys general from 22 different states who are trying to undo the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality. However, there are three states in particular that are joining the opposite team and they're fighting against the people in an effort to make sure that net neutrality doesn't come back, to make sure that it's permanently destroyed. And these states are 
Texas, Arkansas, and Nebraska. Now, for more on this story, we go to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, who writes, The Federal Communications Commission's repeal of net neutrality rules has received support from the Republican Attorneys General of Texas, Arkansas, and Nebraska. The three states filed a brief Friday in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, urging judges to reject a lawsuit filed against the FCC by 22 other states. The action highlights a partisan split among state attorneys general. States with Democratic attorneys general are fighting to save net neutrality, while states with Republican attorneys general are either fighting against net neutrality or standing on the sidelines. The FCC's net neutrality repeal is being challenged in a lawsuit filed by all 22 U.S. states with a Democratic Attorney General, as well as the District of Columbia, which also has a Democratic AG. The net neutrality repeal has drawn interest from state governments, partly because the FCC claimed that it can preempt states from enacting their own net neutrality rules. The state's lawsuit against the FCC seeks to reinstate federal net neutrality rules and prevent preemption of state laws such as one just passed in California. But the Texas-Arkansas-Nebraska brief supports the FCC's authority to change decisions made by previous administrations. The FCC's new leadership can look at the same set of facts and come to a different conclusion without violating the Administrative Procedure Act, which dictates how agencies can make policy changes, they wrote. Quote, accordingly, undoing or reversing agency action is permissible so long as the agency demonstrates awareness of the change and offers a satisfactory reason for it. They wrote, the brief was submitted by Texas AG Ken Paxton, Arkansas AG Leslie Rutledge, and Nebraska AG Doug Peterson. So this is mind-blowing to me for a number of reasons. But first of all, the FCC's repeal of net neutrality is trying to preempt states, is trying to take power away from states. Now, normally, if you're a Republican and you are all about states' rights, well, this flies in the face of that, because clearly, if you support the FCC's repeal order, you're acknowledging and accepting that the FCC has the power and authority to override you and what you want to do in your own state. So you are clearly going against states' rights here. There's a lot of attorneys general who are Republican who are sitting on the sidelines, and that's better than signing onto a lawsuit to fuck over your own constituents. But certainly, if you're going to make the case that you support states' rights and small government, there's no bigger government than allowing one weasel at the FCC to tell your state what it can and can't do when it comes to net neutrality. But I mean, I'm framing this in terms of the conservative argument when what speaks to them is dollar bills. The reason why these Republicans are in favor of destroying net neutrality is because by and large, they take a shit ton of money from internet service providers, lobbyists for AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, they're going above and beyond to make sure that they buy off as many politicians as they possibly can because they know this is going to be a long and lengthy legal battle that might go in their favor if they just win enough Republicans. And these people are shameless. Now, the second reason why this is so absurd is because these Republicans are going against their own constituents, not just the people that they represent that didn't vote for them, but everyone, people who voted for them, by and large, support net neutrality. When you look at aggregate polling data, on this issue, I mean, 
there's no argument against net neutrality. Every single poll shows that the overwhelming majority of the population supports net neutrality. And going to the Mozilla poll that I always cite on this, a majority of Republicans support net neutrality. And this is also something that you'll find in other polls as well. So I just don't get how they can be so open about their desire to overrule the American people. And these states in particular, Texas, Nebraska, Arkansas, they're saying, no, if the FCC says that we're not allowed to do something, we're going to bow our heads to Wajit Pai and let them dictate what we can and can't do. So in other words, if we somehow are out, if a new attorney general comes in who's a Democrat, well, we want to tie their hands as well and make sure that they can't represent the people. I mean, this is just, it's pathetic. I mean, it's, it's shilling out in the open. They're not even trying to hide it. Their agenda is crystal clear. They're bought and paid for by the industry, and it's really as simple as that. Occam's razor, right? It's just that to sign on to a lawsuit, I mean, already not doing anything about net neutrality, that's bad in and of itself, but to sign on to this lawsuit, it's a slap in the face to every single citizen in that state. And there's not much that we can do about it at this point besides, you know, calling them if you live in those states. But certainly we just have to cross our fingers that this lawsuit goes in our direction. Because if we lose this, we're fucked. Net neutrality likely isn't coming back. And the only solution is public broadband. And that's something we've got to fight for at the local level. But certainly we all need to make sure that we're doing what we can at the state level and just hope and pray do whatever you can voodoo uh witchcraft whatever the fuck you possibly can <laughs> to make sure that this lawsuit goes our way now look even if it goes our way well it could get appealed and if it gets to the supreme court we talked about this recently on the program it's gonna die there because brett kavanaugh is very much against net neutrality because he thinks it violates the first amendment because he believes, and a lot of Republicans have the same legal philosophy with regard to this issue, that the internet is more like a magazine, and ISPs should have editorial discretion over what their customers see. So for the government to step in and say, you're not allowed to block certain websites, well, that's a violation of the First Amendment, according to individuals like Brett Kavanaugh. So it's it's disturbing. It really is disturbing. And... um. Really enraging to see these three states sign on to this lawsuit, but I mean, it's it's really I'm I'm still surprised that they didn't sign on sooner. But they're getting bold. I mean, they see that maybe the momentum on this issue is dying down a little bit. Maybe voters are starting to you know tune out a little bit when it comes to the net neutrality debate. Now is our time to you know stake our claim in this battle. Well, you chose wrong. These three attorneys general made the wrong choice, and they're on the wrong side of history. And I hope that they lose their jobs. I hope that they're voted out because of this, because you just went against not just Democrats and liberals, but Republicans as well, who also support net neutrality. So good job. Hopefully your shilling will cost you your job. In an interview with Laura Ingram on Fox News, President Donald Trump spoke about the migrant caravan that has been coming here from Central America that's currently in Mexico and expectedly he fear-mongered about these people and what's really upsetting is that as he tries to scare you and get you to be afraid of these people 
all he's doing is espousing nothing but bullshit. It's all factless fear-mongering in order to gin up support for Republicans ahead of the midterm. So this is what he had to say. And then I'm going to tell you what's really happening and who these people are when we come back. Obama is kind of following you on the campaign trail. He's, he was in Wisconsin. How, how are his crowds? Yeah, Wisconsin. Uh, he's going to Florida this week. And he brought up the issue of the caravan. And he said the following. They're trying to convince everybody to be afraid of a bunch of impoverished, malnourished refugees a thousand miles away. That, that's, the, that's the thing that, that is the most important thing in this election. Not health care, not, not uh, you know, whether or not folks are, are able to retire. Suddenly, it's this group of folks. We don't even know where they are. They're way down there. Don't fall for that kind of fear-mongering. We're scaremongering people on the border. Country. Yeah. Well, he's trying to do the opposite. Uh, it's the problem with our country. When you look at that caravan and you look of largely very, you know, big percentage of men, young, strong, a lot of bad people, a lot of bad people in there, people that are in gangs. We don't want them in this country. If they want to come into the country, you have to apply like other people. We have millions of people coming in. They're applying. They're coming in legally. We have a very strong border. I called up the military. This caravan is not. They're wasting their time. They are not coming What's into the, the country. What's the military going to be able to do? Obama, They'll be uh, able Obama to do and fine. Bush both sent the National Guard. But it had not no effect. Then I mean, this is the I'm sending up the military. This is the military. And they're standing there. And one thing that will happen. No lethal force. When they are captured, we don't let them out. Now, I want to read that quote again. When you look at that caravan and you look of largely very, you know, big percentage of men, young, strong, a lot of bad people, a lot of bad people in there, people that are in gangs. We don't want them in this country. Now, what data is he, is he using to deduce that there's a lot of people in gangs? I mean, the implication is that MS-13 has infiltrated this caravan and they're trying to make their way into the United States in order to commit crime here. And we've even seen fear-mongering from Fox News that there's Middle Easterners in this caravan and that maybe ISIS infiltrated the caravan. I mean, it's just, it's nothing more than factless fear-mongering. And he pulled this all out of his ass. Now, originally what I was doing, what I was planning to do, rather, was go through and provide you with statistical data about the, you know, crime rates compared to, you know, native-born Americans and immigrants, but I've done that before, and facts don't resonate with individuals who operate on the basis of their feelings and emotions, so I don't know how else to approach this situation and explain to you that these people are not criminals, but what I decided to do was something that we don't often see when we talk about these types of stories. I want to put a human face to some of those people in the caravan because, you know, it's easy to demonize people if you think about them in the abstract, but when you really put a face to the people and you see the suffering and you let them tell their story, I think it kind of makes things a little bit more clear. So, this is why they're coming here and who they are in their own words. There are people in the U.S. that think it's irresponsible for mothers to bring children here. We're not irresponsible, she said. Hunger is driving us out, and you have to take risks with your children. If you don't, you'll have nothing. How long did she not eat it for? 
whole day. As we were talking, a boy sat down next to her. She's getting emotional because she just found her brother. Families are losing track of their children in the caravan, but Vasquez is willing to take the risk. What would it take for you to go back to Honduras? ¿Qué tomaría volver a Honduras? No. Yo ahorita ya me vine. She said, there is no turning back now. She has crossed too much ground. She has um, dealt with too many dangers to get this far, and she has to get to the United States. Our message is, we're not criminals. We're coming over here because we want to work. We need a job. We need better, you know, a better life. That's why we're here. Do you understand that President Trump is going to use the pictures of thousands of people surging to the gates against you? He's going to point that to people and say, this is scary. It's his politics, you know, we respect, you know, he's the president. He's the president of the United States. And with all due respect, you know, we don't, we are not criminals. Donald Trump is an antichrist, this man says. If he doesn't repent, he's going to hell. We are not criminals, we are workers and fighters. Eventually, Mexico opens to the caravan, but only a trickle are let through, women and children first, including Marta Torres, who tells me her husband was murdered by Honduran drug gangs, and her three other kids are still across the river. Do, do you want to go to the United States? Have you heard, though, that President Trump doesn't want more people coming and he's even separated families who try to come what should we do now then she says i don't want my kids in the middle of crime i don't want to have the lives of my children further destroyed blanca and her family had been walking since 4 a.m one of many for whom returning to their home country would be a matter of life and death for blanca there is a serious concern that the gangs who killed her husband are going to come back for her family and the rest of them. And so it's just not safe either in their home or their city. A rickshaw driver offered Blanca's children a ride. Another mother begged for her heat-stricken daughter to be allowed in. She was delirious and tried to get out, collapsing into my arms. Put her in the seat. No, it's too hot on the floor. There was no ambulance in sight. No help. We first saw Sergio Cáceres yesterday as the caravan reached its first major city in Mexico. We found him again today on the way out. He's paralyzed and looking for work and better doctors in the U.S. How has this journey been in a wheelchair? ¿Cómo ha sido este camino en una silla de ruedas? Complicado esto, complicado. He says complicated, complicated. Now, those are just some stories, and we got a few anecdotes to, you know, let you know about the situation that they're coming from. They're, they're fleeing violence. They're fleeing famine. And more often than not, they're coming here because they want an opportunity. And yes, they understand that currently President Donald Trump doesn't want them here. Their family might be separated at the border. They may be locked in cages. But that's still preferable to the alternative of staying. I mean, if you are from Honduras and your husband was killed by a gang, and you fear for your life, you fear for the lives of your children, yeah, I think being locked in a cage in America is probably preferable. I think dealing with a xenophobic president who's going to fearmonger about you is preferable than dying. Yeah, I think most reasonable people 
would come to that same conclusion. Now, I'm not under the delusion that showing you their stories and, you know, putting a face to their stories is somehow going to convince people that have already decided that they don't want these people in their country. But nonetheless, it's a lot more difficult to jump to these conspiracy theories about George Soros funding these people or that they're coming here to vote or that ISIS or MS-13 has infiltrated them when you actually see these people and you hear their stories for themselves. That's important. But yet, Donald Trump will go on national television with little to no pushback from Fox News host Laura Ingram and say, they're, you know, they're big, strong men. Why did he say that? Why did he say these are big, strong men? Because he wants you to be afraid. They're criminals. They're gangs. They're big, strong men that are going to come here and commit crime and maybe harm you. But look, if you're a conservative, I thought that you guys were the tough guys. It's us liberals who are the ones who should be afraid of everything. We're the ones who are beta male cucks, right? We're the ones who are soy boys. So shouldn't you guys be less afraid of immigrants than us? Why is it that people who, theoretically speaking, should be more afraid because we're weaker? Why are we not afraid? It's because we have facts on our side and it's not hard to recognize that these are people whose intentions are pure. They're not coming here to fuck you over. They are fleeing violence. Ask yourself this question. Separate those people from the issue and just ask yourself this question. In the event your death was imminent if you didn't flee and go to a different country, would you do that? You can't tell me that you wouldn't do that. That goes against basic human instinct. That goes against everything that we'd feel in the event we actually did fear for our lives. So they're not coming here to harm you. And regardless, if this doesn't convince you and you still don't want them here, at a minimum, stop fear-mongering and understand where they're coming from and why they want to come here. You can still be against it. That's fine. I disagree with you. But at least acknowledge that these are not Soros paid shills coming to vote. Facts matter. And in a situation like this, where these people are harmless and powerless, demonizing them and fear-mongering about them is a different level of just disturbing and disgusting. But I mean, it's, it's what we've come to expect from Donald Trump, who is able to weaponize issues related to immigration in order to gin up support and fire up the base. And he's doing this a lot more ahead of midterms. So I've been saying this on the show since 2015 when Donald Trump was still a candidate. Hateful rhetoric oftentimes has violent consequences. And after stoking the flames for years now, we're seeing the impact that Donald Trump is having on the country. So when our hate monger in chief headed to Pittsburgh to make a speech and pay respects to the victims of the synagogue attack, he was met by thousands of protesters with signs like this that read, quote, President Trump, you are not welcome in Pittsburgh until you commit yourself to compassionate democratic policies that recognize the dignity of us all. And there were also similar signs that said he's not welcome until he stops his assault on immigrants and refugees and fully denounces white supremacy 
and the people who protested him managed to do something really powerful that that personally touched me they got him to turn his motorcade around they blocked him and he was forced to uh head in the opposite direction in what i think was one of the most inspiring acts of solidarity we've seen in this country since donald trump became president and it was just wonderful to watch so i want to play a clip um from cnn that talks about these protests because i really think that we're witnessing history here and we're going to see this written about in history books so i really want us to absorb what's happening in this country right now so take a look we're, we're less than a block away here wolf this is the protest there are several thousand people uh, in this protest now it was one protest then two and then we got to this area you can hear those sirens that is the president now leaving this area protesters have been completely peaceful but there are several different groups represented here i'm going to show you just eddie if you just sit around here this area that direction is where the uh the synagogue is all of those sirens you can hear uh, are, are the the commotion that law enforcement are making as the president is trying to leave. It has been completely peaceful, and at this point, it appears that they are actually trying to move these protesters out, which is going to be extraordinarily difficult if they expect to bring the president uh, in this direction. They're trying to back people up. Uh, we have seen little more than tears in this neighborhood today and it has turned into anger as the day has moved on as people realize that the president is coming this protest wasn't planned at all 24 hours ago and in the last 24 hours it has exploded we weren't sure how many people were going to show up here uh, there were very few people who had actually signed up to come and now there are thousands of people on in scroll here look over here Eddie. there's there's somebody is trying to get somebody's being arrested here uh, there there was a large knot of people who moved toward the synagogue which is about a block away and were trying to get through the police cordon you can see the the police cars now trying to move the crowd back the crowd itself they are chanting turn your backs hey Miguel Miguel hold hold on for a second Miguel I want I want our, our viewers to hear what they are chanting uh, they right now let's listen in briefly satisfaction of knowing that they're that they're upset with him but there is great great uh, anger and upset uh, in this uh, in this area today and let's just listen to a little of this uh, commotion here So it appeared to me that the president actually moved off in a different uh, direction, and this was an ancillary unit that was moving down this way. But just thousands of people in Squirrel Hill, Hill registering their uh, upset and concern with the president being here, feeling that it just brings the wrong message. Wolf. So the reporter said they feel that Trump being there gives the wrong message. And that's exactly it. If you think you can show up to Pittsburgh in order to pay lip service to the victims of this violent white supremacist attack, this anti-Semitic disgusting attack, after you've been fanning the flames of hate for years in this country, no, 
You don't get to do that, Donald Trump. You don't get to exploit these deaths in order to use it as a photo op to make yourself look better after you've used hateful rhetoric as a political tool to get yourself elected, to gin up support and throw red meat to your base. You can't have it both ways. Either you unequivocally condemn violence and white supremacy and anti-Semitism and stop targeting marginalized communities or... You can keep talking the way you do, but you have to hide your face when the dangerous consequences of your rhetoric materializes. Yesterday's visit to Pittsburgh was about coming together as a nation to comfort and to heal. After this day of unity and togetherness, I came home and sadly turned on the news and watched as the far-left media once again Use tragedy to sow anger and division. I mean, last week was just, it was such an awful week, right? And I often don't talk about something unless I feel as if my commentary supplements the story. Like I'm adding something meaningful to the conversation. And at this point, the rate to which violence occurs in this country, I'm just, I'm fucking exhausted. I'm tired. We're all feeling it. It's beating us down. And I I just, I don't know what to say anymore. What do you say? When every single week in this country, there's a new marginalized community under attack. I mean, last week, it was transgender Americans. When Trump's administration was essentially trying to define them out of existence. When the Justice Department said that businesses can fire individuals if they're trans. And then we have Trump claiming that immigrants and the caravan coming from Central America, you know, they're criminals, they're young, strong men. And then we have bombs being sent by a right-wing terrorist. We have mass shootings occurring on what seems like a weekly basis. Hate crimes being committed, police brutality against people of color. And then this last weekend, we have Jewish Americans being killed at a synagogue. I mean, this is demoralizing. And I I just, I feel like it's so hard to formulate the right words to comfort communities that are vulnerable. Because what can you say to them when their lives are at stake when they're vulnerable when their human dignity is being denied on a daily basis and i don't have the right words but i really want to share an article that a viewer of mine sent in who is a jewish american that really felt as if solidarity right now is meaningful in and of itself so this is an article from the nation by phyllis bennis and reverend dr william j barber of the second and i really feel as if their words are healing And we need to hear them right now. So it's a really short article. So I'm going to read the whole thing. They state, let's be clear. The attack in Pittsburgh is what real anti-Semitism looks like with all its horror, fear, and deadly violence. This is the anti-Semitism that has historically fueled right-wing and fascist movements that have targeted vulnerable communities and countries around the world and in eras going back hundreds of years. And let's be clear, this is what happens when a country's leaders, especially its president, 
Call for, defend, encourage, and protect those who threaten and commit acts of violence against Jews, Muslims, African Americans, immigrants, LGBTQ people, women, or the best-known opponents of the president. This is what happens when a president makes false claims, blithely admitting there is no evidence that desperate Central American asylum seekers looking for safety in the United States somehow include terrorists, including unnamed, quote, Middle Easterners. We cannot separate those White House claims from the gunman's social media rage aimed at the historically Jewish refugee support organization HIAS, which plays a vital role in defending asylum seekers. Saying just a few hours before his shooting rampage, HIAS looks to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics, I'm going in. This is the kind of attack. No, these are the kinds of attack that call for the strongest, most powerful, most unequivocal unity of all those who faced racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic, misogynistic, transphobic violence. A unity to bring down the forces of white supremacy and hate. That means we have to mobilize, organize, and vote as never before. We must vote against policy violence and physical violence. We must vote against gun violence and the proliferation of guns. We stand against any politician's words that demean and diminish the humanity of whomever they deem the other because in doing so they legitimize more violence. More than half a century ago when four young girls were killed in a Birmingham church by a racist's bomb, Dr. King told us that those little girls have something to say to every politician who has fed his constituents with the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderer. We stand with the victims of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. We stand with the African-American victims of the Kroger shooting in Kentucky last week. We stand with the victims of the white supremacist shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, with the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting and beyond. We stand with the victims of every white supremacist and racist and anti-Semitic assault back through history, and we stand as one with the communities who have come together to fight back and reclaim our unity, our lives and our humanity every time we stand together and that really is the perfect words and i was touched when i when i um when i read that it brought tears to my eyes because this is really all that we can do i mean when when you see tragedies occur on a weekly basis and it just beats you down all we have is each other and if we come together and say you know we're condemning this. We stand together in solidarity, everyone. It really, there's something inherently comforting about that that I think is worthwhile, you know, in hearing. So I wanted to share that with you because it made me feel a little bit better. Um, or not necessarily made me feel better. It, it, it was what we needed to hear, rather. It's what I felt as if, you know, I needed to hear and what everyone else needed to hear. So thank you so much to my um, my viewer, Gail, for sharing that article with me. You know, at times like this, we have to lean on each other, you know, because that's all that we got. It's, it's to see atrocities being committed in our own country, against our own people, against our own communities. It hurts. 
And we have to come together at times like this. Because when we feel demoralized and you feel like, you know, it's really difficult and you don't have the right words, lean on each other. That's all I can say about this. And, you know, I'll end on that note. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the show. As usual, we can't end the show without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. Thank you so much for helping us to not only survive but thrive as well. I will see you all next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. Take care.